The word romance conjures images of men and women meeting one another and falling helplessly in love. But if we trace the literature of romance back to its roots in the medieval period, we encounter many stories where chivalric knights and ladies refuse or fail to conform to convention. Hannah Piercy takes us on a tour through some of this historic writing of the heart, though she starts with an example that is much closer to home. This podcast is brought to you by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. It was recorded during our series of late summer lectures in 2018. So this image is a still thing from the 2004 film, The Notebook. For those of you who don't know it, here the male protagonist, Noah, is asking out the female protagonist, Annie. When he initially approaches her, she refuses him. So he climbs onto the ferris wheel she's riding with a man who is presumably her current date, and threatens to let go of it and fall from the top if she won't go out with him. Shocked and frightened, Ali agrees, and this marks the beginning of their turbulent but often romanticised relationship. It's also not in the book for anyone who's interested in that, it's an invention of the screenwriter. So I think this is perhaps a surprisingly useful beginning for my lecture on resisting love in medieval romance. These kinds of relationships, where one partner is initially not interested in the other, are exactly what I'll be talking about today. Although in the rather different context of medieval romance literature, so there'll be fewer ferris wheels to be pleased to hear. I'm really fascinated by the kinds of implications these beginnings have for questions of gender, desire and consent. And I think they apply very much not just to the medieval period, but also today. First of all, I'm going to introduce the genre of medieval romance literature, as I realise it's something that not everyone will be familiar with. Um, and I'll do a brief summary of kind of medieval marriage patterns and beliefs. After that, I'm going to discuss some examples of resistance to love in medieval romance. I'm going to talk about both women who resist or reject men, and men who resist or reject women, and as well as the implied attitudes towards their resistance. So as this implies, all of the relationships sorry, I'm going to be talking about today would be defined as heterosexual. Now, each character I'm focusing on falls in love with someone of the opposite sex to them. This is, of course, not to say that same-sex relationships weren't present in the medieval world. They very much were a part of life then as now. But my current focus is very much on kind of formal rejections or declarations of love, and it's often affected by societal expectations of marriage and procreation. So for this reason, the relationships I'll be talking about are opposite sex ones. So, what is medieval romance literature? Uh, you can see the images I've put there, they're all from medieval romance manuscripts, and I've chosen them to kind of try and illustrate different themes that come up in romance literature. So, romance is a genre popular in Western Europe between the 12th and the 16th century. Um, it was first written in French, and then increasingly in Middle English. That's just the term of the language spoken in England during the medieval period. Um, it was also written in other European languages, everything from German to kind of Byzantine Greek. So the term romance, you might be surprised to hear it didn't originally come from love at all. Uh, it actually came from the French word romance, meaning literature in the vernacular, so text and not in Latin. Romance began to take on more specific generic meanings as a certain type of narrative came to be associated with writings in vernacular languages, such as English and French. So romance came to designate a story which features knight's acts of chivalry and adventure, that's what the first picture represents. Um, the second picture is a love relationship, another common feature. Magic is another common feature. Um, and a happy ending is another common feature of romance. So although the modern meaning of romance as a story about love isn't irrelevant to medieval romance literature, that's where the term romance comes from. It comes from medieval romance and it starts from love. Um, its subject matter isn't limited to this either, although it is what I'll be focusing on today. So to continue focusing on the theme of love, I want to do a brief and very general summary of some medieval ideas about marriage. 
From the late 12th century, the church identified consent as the fundamental requirement for matrimony. So in theory, all a couple had to do to wed was to speak the words that would bind them together. You would just say, I take you as my husband, or I take you my trust. And in theory, if you both said that, and you were free consenting, you were then married. They didn't need to marry at a church with a priest in charge of the ceremony, although this was the ideal and the church very much encouraged this. They also didn't need the agreement of their parents. The only requirements were for them to be of age, and that would be 14 for boys and 12 for girls, so very young, um, and to be freely consenting. I think aside from the young age at which people were allowed to marry, this really doesn't sound too bad. Um, but of course, this was the teaching in theory, not in practice, and in practice, matters were often treated very differently. So particularly in aristocratic families, marriages would often be arranged by the parents, who would expect their sons and daughters to marry in their family's interests, gain money and status, um, and to continue the family line. So young women and men were often given little choice in their partner for life in practice. This usually isn't the case in romance literature, which takes a highly idealised view of the possibilities for young people to choose their own partners. Nonetheless, I think there are times when we can see some evidence of the real pressures of marriage creeping into romance literature. And I think that's the case with some of the texts I'll be talking about today. I'm going to start by talking about a few texts where women resist love. So I should say at the beginning that the resistance to love that women display in medieval romance literature is not always outright resistance. Although some women reject love outright, others make vows to marry only the finest knight in the world. This might not sound like they're refusing love, but in practice it serves as a way of temporarily rejecting a kind of mass body of suitors. Um, while leaving open a pathway to love and marriage if someone can prove themselves as the best knight in the world. So I will be discussing this as a kind of resistance, even if it's not a kind of total refusal to love. And this, in fact, is probably the most common pattern for resisting love, for women to resist love in medieval romance literature. Usually, narratives where women attempt to resist love do result in them ending up more or less happily married um, to a worthy knight of their own choosing. So female resistance to love in medieval romance is rarely absolute and rarely entirely successful, really. I'm going to start with a lady who does reject love in general, though, rather than saying she's only going to marry the finest knight in the world. And this is Eglantine from the, the late prose romance Entrevant and Eglantine, written in 1489. The main female character in this romance, Eglantine, is known as the proud lady in love because she rejects all suitors who ask for her hand in marriage, appearing entirely uninterested in love. Eglantine is an heiress who's already come into her inheritance, and she rules the land of Dari in her own right. Yet although she is sole ruler, she does face criticism and pressure from her vassals. Her vassals are just the knights who owe allegiance to her, and they pressurise her to try and get her to take a husband. So in particular, one of her knights, known as the Knight of the Ferry because he guards the river crossing, um, he decries her obstinata will, as he refers to it, and he says he hopes that the arrows of love, some day, if God be pleased, shall not be evil aboard her. So the knight of the ferry, of course, is not wrong. When the young knight Blanchardin arrives at Eglantine's court, Eglantine does eventually fall in love with him, and after a series of complications, the text ends with them happily married. Eglantine, then, is an example of a woman who resists love, but she ends the text willingly and happily married, demonstrating that even when women reject love in general in medieval romance, um, they can still end up being drawn into a romantic relationship, despite their initial resistance. Eglantine also reveals some of the critical attitudes that women can face for their rejection of love in medieval romance literature, as her vassals, in particular the Knight of the Ferry, urge her to renounce what they refer to as her pride and to marry a worthy suitor. Yet this form of criticism seems quite mild in comparison with the treatment of another lady who resists love, this time by rejecting one particular lover, 
in the romance The Mort d'Arthur by Thomas Mallory. So the episode involving this lady in The Mort d'Arthur and the lady called Etard, it takes up only six pages of this long Arthurian prose romance, but it nonetheless takes, it has important implications for understanding different attitudes towards female resistance to love. So in brief, a knight called Peleus loves Etard, and he continually both proves and humiliates himself for her, just to cover all bases really, while she scorns and rejects him in return. The Lady of the Lake, an enchantress you might have heard of from other Arthurian tales, hears of Peleus' sorrows, and she decides to intervene. She enchants both Etard and Peleus, and she causes Etard to fall in love with Peleus, but instead of providing the happy ending, she causes Peleus to hate Etard in return. Um, what she does then is she takes Peleus away as her own lover, which she's quite happy to do now that he no longer loves Etard, and Etard actually dies of sorrow. So this is a pretty extreme and pretty brutal ending to female resistance to love in medieval romance literature. Problematically, I think Etard's death could be interpreted as a kind of punishment for her rejection of Peleus. The Lady of the Lake's enchantment is perhaps supposed to give her a kind of very harsh taste of her own medicine. And there's really no implication that we're supposed to sympathise with Etard. She seems to be supposed to be the villain. I think it is relevant and even necessary to mention here that Sir Thomas Mallory, author of The Mot d'Arthur, was accused and convicted of rape. At least that's if he is who we think he is. So with medieval authors, we often don't know very much about them. In this case, we know his name. We know that he wrote The Mot d'Arthur in prison, because it says so in the text. And we know that there was a Thomas Mallory of New World Rebel, who was accused and convicted of rape, who was imprisoned, and who would kind of fit the bill. So most people think it's the same person. We can't really prove it, so it's, it's probable, but not definite. So although elsewhere Mallory presents positive and sympathetic portrayals of women, here it seems he has little tolerance for female rejection and resistance. The story of Etard shows us the most extremely negative form of a lady who rejects love. She's punished for rejecting a man with death, while Peleus' persistence is rewarded with love and happiness. Don't worry, we're getting on to the cheery bit now. So uh, while many women who resist love are presented in a way that's at least slightly negative, there are some examples where female resistance to love is portrayed more positively. This is particularly the case with Felice, the female protagonist of the romance Guy of Warwick. Like many of the other women who resist love, Felice is the sole heiress to her family's substantial lands. So although she's very similar to the other characters in that she inherits vast lands, here her resistance to love is treated in quite a positive way. So at the beginning of the text, we are told that she has rejected Ducas Erles of Greater Kin for the goodness that was her on. So while Eglantine's rejection of suitors is blamed on her obstinata will, Felice's resistance to love is attributed to her goodness. So why might this be the case? Well, I think there are a few different reasons. Um, one could be that Guy of Warwick, as I've kind of hinted at, and the text associated with it, may have been commissioned by the Beauchamp family of Warwick, who claimed Guy and Felice as their legendary ancestors. Um, as possible patrons, they may have wanted both of their ancestors to be praised, and so the reason might be as kind of simple as that. But I think that's a bit boring, so I've got some other theories. Um, one possibility is the effect that the presence of Felice's father has on the story. So in other narratives of the reluctant woman, such as the story of Eglantine and Ethard, who I've already told you about, the women have already come into their inheritance, and so they have no surviving parents. In Guy of Warwick, Felice's father is alive for a great proportion of the romance. Um, although it might seem surprising to suggest that an heiress may have more freedom in marriage when her parents are alive than when they're dead, I think this is a possibility in this text. It seems as though Felice's need to marry is perhaps less urgent than the other ladies, because she has her father there to protect the lands for her in the meantime. 
But there's also another major possibility, and this is the different status that Guy holds in comparison with most of the other knights who were reluctant women. Guy is the son of Felice's father's steward, and he's not even a knight when he first asks Felice for her love, so he's much lower status than she is. It would be really controversial and not really a good move for her to accept him, as she quite happily points out to him. So she rejects him angrily, um, invoking his lower status. Art thou not sequadas sum gi, who made thee so foolhardy, for to assay me of love? So I think that's quite a harsh rejection, really. Um, so when Guy petitions Felice again, though, she starts to take pity on him. So first of all, she says that she'll love him once he's been knighted. So he goes off and becomes a knight and then comes back to her. And she says, actually, she'll only love him once he's proven in battle. So he goes off, fights in battles. I think it takes him a whole year. He comes back and he says, okay, now you've got to love me. And she says, no, I will only marry you when you're known as the finest knight in the whole world. He's not very pleased with that. <laughs> um, so, although Felice does keep changing the terms of her agreement, this isn't necessarily viewed negatively by anyone other than Guy. Rather than pride, Felice's resistance to love could actually be viewed as a positive, if extreme, example of prudence in courtship. In order for her to marry Guy, he must increase his status and prestige, while as the heiress to significant lands, she must ensure her chosen husband is capable of protecting the family's inheritance. The series of conditions she sets for Guy to meet accomplish this effectively, so that when she tells her father that she wishes to marry Guy, he praises her. When thou desirest such a knight, and may maintain my longer thrift. So in this way, Felice's initial resistance to marrying Guy actually blurs into a set of conditions for marrying Guy. These conditions encourage him to demonstrate his prowess, and to this extent, I think Felice's resistance to love in some way works with, rather than against, knightly and patriarchal preoccupations. And I think this would provide a good explanation as to why her initial resistance is described so positively. I want to move on now to consider some of the male figures who reject love, and to think about how attitudes to them differ, or remain similar to attitudes to women who reject love. So I'm going to start with, with an Arthurian text, um, with I think my favourite knight who rejects love, um, Sir Dinadan from Mallory's Mont d'Arthur. So Dinadan is a kind of sidekick almost to the renowned knight Sir Tristan, um, who you might have heard of from the famous set of Project Lovers, Tristan and Isolde. Dinadan is occasionally cowardly, like a good sidekick. Um, but he's nonetheless described as gentle, weak, and a good creature. He declares himself to be against love and lovers, and this appears to be treated as a kind of comic trait of his, possibly related to his cowardice. When Isolde, Tristram's lover, tests Dinadan by asking him to fight three knights in return for her love, Dinadan declares, I shall say you ye be as fair a lady as ever I saw, and much fairer than is my lady, Queen Guineva. But weet you well, at one word, I will not fight for you with three pictures, years and me defend them. So basically he's saying, you're very beautiful, but I really don't want to fight three other men for you. You're not worth it, I'm sorry. Um, his old response to this is simply to laugh at him. And I think this reflects the more general reaction to Dinadan and his lack of interest in love. It's simply accepted as a part, if a comic part, of his character. And it doesn't change during the romance, so he never falls in love. So Degrafan, from the romance of the same name, shares some similarities with Dinadan. He's described as an excellent knight, and again it's just said to be uninterested in love. We're simply told, Certes we fought he none, quenched no lemon, but as an anchor in a stone, he lived ever true. 
There is, I think, clearly an element of comic exaggeration to this. We're being told here that he lives as an anchorite, as a re- religious recluse, in a cell which would be kind of appended to a church. Um, and Degelbrandt is very clearly not doing this, but he's not interested in love, and that's a kind of exaggerated way of describing it. Um, I think, though, that although there's an element of comic exaggeration, there's no real negative judgment made upon Degelbrandt's lack of interest in love. There's also no sense of judgment when he actually changes his mind. He sees Melidor, the daughter of his neighbour and his enemy, and he falls in love with her. But this is simply presented as he sees her and he changes his mind. There's no sense of judgment, and it's just really accepted as part of his character, I think. The character of Troilus, however, from Geoffrey Chaucer's poem Troilus Not a Spade, is a slightly different case. Troilus is initially resistant to love, mocking those of his knights who look longingly at young women in the temple. And his pride and scorn is observed by the god of love, Cupid, who shoots him with an arrow, piercing his heart to ensure that he that now was most in pride above, quacks suddenly, most subject unto love. So the trait of Cupid shooting a lover in order for love to begin, inauspicious though it might seem for us, is actually a very common one in medieval romance. Here, however, I think the violence of the image is very clearly emphasised. As Cupid hit him at a fall, Troilus is compared to a horse receiving a lash of the whip, or a peacock being plucked. The beginning of his love for Crusade, then, is described in terms of Cupid's violence, and even Cupid's vengeance, for Troilus' initial pride. Troilus' painful experience of love is thus in a way construed as a punishment for his initial scorn, which shares some similarities with the punishment of Etard in Mallory's Mort d'Arthur. However, Troilus' punishment is a much less direct and extreme one, although he does actually die at the end of the narrative. I don't think there's the same implication that his death is a punishment for scorning love. There's kind of a lot more going on in this text than there is in the other one. So, my final example on this tour of people who don't want to fall in love but do is Guigemar, the eponymous hero of the lay by the poet known as Marie France. This lay was written in Anglo-Norman, so this is the dialect of French that was spoken in medieval Britain. So, Guigemar, I think, provides a number of points of overlap with women who resist love, as well as with the representation of Troilus. At the beginning of the lay, we're told that Guigemar is a perfect knight. However, nature had done him such a grievous wrong that he never displayed the slightest interest in love. There was no lady or maiden on earth, however noble or beautiful, who would not have been happy to accept him as her lover if he had sought her love. Women frequently made advances to him, but he was indifferent to them. He showed no physical interest in love and was thus considered a lost cause by stranger and friend alike. So this passage suggests that like women who resist love, Kijmar is subject to the expectation that he ought to love. We're told that his lack of interest in love is considered so abnormal as to be unnatural, nature has wronged him by failing to give him an interest in love. Again, like the resistant woman, he's sought out by potential lovers, but he remains indifferent to them. I think there is an implication that more usually it would be Guigemar who would do the wooing. So firstly we're told that many women would have been happy to accept him as her lover, and only then that women made advances to him. There's also a suggestion that although Guigemar's lack of interest in love is a cause of disapproval, it's not so strongly condemned as some of the women's resistance to love. Even stating Guigemar as a lost cause kind of implies a certain level on which his lack of interest in love is accepted, that there's kind of nothing anyone can do about it. There is, however, some pressure on him to marry, specifically. So later in the text, we're told that they wanted him to take a wife, but he would not hear of the idea. However, Guigemar is not subject to the same specific pressure from members of his family or vassals. Here it's simply some unspecified they who wish him to marry. He's not placed under the same emotional or logistical pressure as women who reject love, 
whose vassals sometimes threaten to give their service to another if she will not marry. Nonetheless, it is clear that there is still an expectation that high-status men will marry, and there is some disapproval of Bushman's lack of interest in this. So, to draw all these examples together, I want to summarise some of the similarities and differences we've seen between women and men who reject and resist love. Both men and women can be subject to the expectation of love, as well as the pressure and sometimes punishment if they resist it. However, the pressure and punishment of women who resist love is generally more direct and often more extreme than the treatment of men who resist love. So Etard actually dies when she experiences the rejection she'd earlier shown Pelias, while no man experiences death as, as a punishment for resistance to love in medieval romance literature. Similarly, male resistance to love is more, more commonly accepted than female resistance to love. Zinedan never falls in love um, and is allowed to remain happily single, while Degrevant's initial lack of interest in love is accepted, as is his right to change his mind when he does see a woman whom he can love. Although, of course, Felice from Guy of Warwick's initial resistance to love is represented quite positively, this is perhaps only because she does eventually consent to love. It's not quite the same as Dinadan and Degrabant's situation, where their lack of interest in love seems to be accepted on its own terms. So overall, I think we can perhaps say that when we compare attitudes to men rejecting love and women rejecting love, we're talking about varying degrees of acceptance and condemnation. It's not that men's resistance to love is accepted, while women's is condemned, but that they receive varying amounts of acceptance and condemnation. Gender does have an effect on how resistance to love is received, but it's certainly not the only factor. Social status, family relations, and the specifics of who you're rejecting and how all also have important roles to play. So I hope this lecture today has given you some insight into medieval romance literature's treatment of all these different topics. And I also hope that I might have got you thinking about the similarities with our treatment and portrayal of relationships today. The idea of a love relationship as a compulsory part of life is still perpetuated across literature and society, and I think it still does to some extent disproportionately affect women. The violations of consent that can be undertaken in the process of getting a reluctant partner to reconsider are also, of course, still relevant to our contemporary society. So, perhaps by thinking about where these ideas and behaviours come from, we can start to challenge our ideas of them and change our notions of what a happy ending is and where it comes from. So good. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you would like to comment on the podcast you have just listened to, or if you want to download more of our podcasts, visit our blog at www.readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com.